Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Let's talk about the good ground for discipleship in the parable of the soils. The parable of the soils is found in Matthew and Mark and Luke, and I'm going to look at the Luke passage and... uh, we're going to see that the purpose of this parable is to show how people respond to God's truth. So it's really relevant to us here this evening because we're all going to be hearing God's word. The question is how are you going to respond to it as you're hearing it? Also has to say something about uh, fruitfulness and how that response should lead to fruitfulness, which is a chief characteristic of a disciple. John 15:8 talks about, by this my Father's glorified that you bear much fruit, and by this people will know that you're my disciples. It's not to teach about false professions of faith. Now, see, here's where other theological systems will come along and interpret the parable of the soils as teaching that there's the only true Christian is one who bears fruit. You see, that's what they say. And, and we'll show you why that's not a very good interpretation. So um, let's just read it quickly together, and then we'll make some points. And when a great multitude had gathered, and they had come to him, Jesus, from every city, he spoke by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked it. But others fell on good ground sprang up and yielded a crop a hundredfold. When he had said these things, he cried, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. The emphasis of this parable, I think, is shown by its design. It talks about various types of soil. Sometimes it's called the parable of the sower, but really has little to do with the sower. It has all to do with an emphasis on the kinds of soil that the seed falls on. And that represents the kind of responses people have to hearing God's word. And Jesus ended what we just read by saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I really believe, as many commentators do, that this has an imperatival force. That means it's more of a command. Uh, Paraphrase like this. If you are receptive to truth, listen to this. Listen to this. And that's what parables do. They enlighten those who are inclined to be receptive to understand truth that has been concealed from those who are not responsive and inclined not to be responsive. Isaiah 6.9 talks about the nation of Israel being blinded. The nation wasn't receptive. Isaiah 6.9 talks about your your eyes are blind, your ears are are dull, and, and you become dull of hearing. And this is right after he says, to, you know, he says, uh, who will go? And Isaiah says, send me. And so God says, okay, Isaiah, I'm going to send you, but, you know, nobody's going to listen to you. <laughs> they're going to be dull of hearing. They're blind. They're not going to see you. They're not going to hear you. Uh, but Isaiah was faithful, wasn't he? Well, this is a passage that's quoted uh, at the end of the book of Acts as well by Paul to show the unresponsiveness of people. In the context, I believe that the seed is God's word. And 
it's God's word, not just in the gospel, but in the good news about Jesus and his identity as the king of Israel, the Messiah, who has come to his people. So it's good news in relationship to the kingdom of God. Why do I say that? Because in the flow of the text, especially evident in Matthew, in chapters 11 and 12, and this appears in chapter 13 in Matthew, in chapter 11 and 12 in Matthew, you have Jesus presenting himself to the nation. And you remember, they reject him, and then he condemns the nation. So now he begins to speak to this disobedient nation in parables because they're not responsive to his message that here I am, I'm the king, your savior, uh, the king of Israel. And it comes in the, in also in the flow of the context in Luke when John the Baptist questions Jesus. Was he having doubts? And he, asks, he sends a messenger to ask Jesus, Is this, are you the one that we're expecting to come? And Jesus responds by telling him that uh, he has these messianic powers and go tell John, you know, that I, I heal the sick and so forth. And so he makes messianic claims there. And then the nation's leaders reject his testimony, as illustrated in the story of Simon and the, and the sinful woman who came. And you remember, she wiped his feet with her tears. And the Pharisees show their hypocrisy by condemning her while Jesus commends her and he forgives her sin. And they said, who is this that can forgive sins? So the question of Jesus' identity and his message of forgiveness and acceptance of sinners is right there and leads to this parable. And then even after this parable, only those who receive his testimony are intimately related to him. Who are my brothers and mother, brother and sisters, he says. It's those who do the word of God. So that's some of the context. And the... the, the the relationship that one has with the Word of God has always been an essential element of discipleship. And that's evident in many passages, as you see here, just briefly cited. Luke chapter 6, whoever comes to me and hears my word and does them. Luke 11, blessed are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. John 8, 31, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John 15, 7 through 8. If you abide in my words and my words abide in you, you ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. John 17, 6, they have kept your word. James 1, be doers of the word. So the relationship that you and I have to the word of God is essential to our identity and growth as a disciple. Now, one of the things, uh, well, let's, let's look at uh, verses 8 and 9 as we go on and, and read a little bit further. Then his disciples disciples asked him, saying, What does the parable mean? And he said, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables, that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. A reference to Isaiah 6, 9. So his disciples do us a favor and ask for an interpretation. We don't always get that from Jesus, but he's going to give one to his disciples. And we're fortunate enough to have it for us here. But Jesus is using this parable uh, to make a teaching point that I am now speaking in parables because those who are not going to be responsive are going to not understand the truth that I'm teaching. And those who are responsive are going to understand it. Those who are not responsive for them, this truth is going to be hidden in plain sight. But those of us who are receptive and willing 
will understand what he's trying to say. So, let's look at this parable. Let's go to the first point that he makes. Now, one interesting thing about this parable is it's the first that Jesus gave. It's the first parable that he gives in a series of parables, and uh, that series extends further. Luke only has two, but the series extends further in Matthew chapter 13. But he begins with this parable. And I think the reason that he begins with this parable and an interpretation of it is simply because he's explaining uh, to the people uh, kingdom truths, and he's explaining why he uses parables. So this is a good introductory parable because it shows how people respond to the word of God and how they'll respond further as he continues to teach kingdom truths. Now, let's look at verse 11. This is Jesus' interpretation. Now, this, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Again, in context, the word of God is could be the gospel message, but gospel means good news, and the good news that Jesus was trying to communicate to the nation of Israel was that I am here, I am the Savior. Of course, that means the Savior from sin. I am the Messiah, the Deliverer, the King. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their heart, lest they should believe and be saved. So let's focus in on what happens here. The devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. Isn't that an amazing picture there of what happens in the spiritual realm that we cannot see and perceive with our physical sight nor sense even with our spiritual senses that Satan is working behind the scenes as you're sharing the gospel or good news with someone. Satan is there snatching that seed up perhaps away from that person. Maybe that explains why some people just don't get it sometimes. They seem blinded to the message and they don't understand it. And you, you say, I couldn't have explained it any more clearly than that. I think their heart condition has something to do with that. Satan kind of knows our heart condition, and perhaps he knows those who aren't going to be responsive, and he easily snatches that away from them. Now, does this indicate that belief results in eternal salvation? It absolutely does, because it is told to us, Jesus said, lest they believe, that lest they should believe and be saved. So in Jesus' interpretation, to believe in him means salvation. In fact, throughout the Gospels, whenever someone believes in Jesus Christ, it always results in salvation. There are some commentators, who, and many commentators, who want to say, well, it really wasn't true faith, and uh, they really didn't believe, or uh, they believed in his signs and his name, but they didn't believe in him. And they have all kinds of reasons to make belief not result in eternal salvation. But if you are consistent in the Gospels, belief results in salvation. It's clear. Now, this is the only soil that has direct satanic interference. We're given some insight in 2 Corinthians 4.4 that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, lest the glorious light of the gospel should shine into their hearts. So Satan has put a veil over the minds of those who are inclined not to believe or not to be receptive. And by the way, here's an interesting point that we should observe. If People could lose their salvation. Satan could snatch the seed later, right? Why does he do it at the beginning? Because that's the only chance he gets. Once people believe, they're out of his grasp forever. And nothing can separate them 
from the love of God, right? So how can people say that you can lose your salvation? Satan knows that they can't, and that's why he is so eager to snatch that seed and keep people from believing in the first place. So this first soil are those on the wayside. I assume that they're not inclined to be responsive to the word of God, and Satan finds them an easy target, and he pulls that gospel away from them. And the blindness of their traditions and the blindness of their culture and the blindness of their religion and the blindness of their pride uh, and self-exaltation, whatever it is, he just can walk right in and take that message away so that they never hear it and believe. That's the condition of many people in the world today. There's a second soil here, and the ones, the seed that falls on the rock are those who, when they hear the word with joy, they have no root, who believe for a while, and in time of temptation, they fall away. Let's look at that a little bit closer. They hear the word, and they're, they're happy about it. They're joyful about it. They're excited about it, an emotional experience, perhaps. Do they really believe? Well, it says they believe. Their faith is not in question. What's in question is the duration of their faith, the perseverance of their faith. So they joyfully receive the word. Does this indicate that they are eternally saved? I believe that it does. Because Jesus just said, if you believe, you're saved. Is this a false faith? Many commentators, perhaps the majority of commentators, would say these people really do not believe or really are not saved. And they call it a false faith or uh, a head faith or an insincere faith, something like that. But the clear statement of the text and the previous soil is that if you believe, you'll be saved. And the clear statement of the text here is that they believed even though it was for a while. So who are we to second-guess what the author is telling us? The only deficiency in the faith is its duration, not its sincerity. It doesn't say they didn't really believe sincerely or they only believe with their head. It says they believe, but they believe for a while. See, this whole notion of false faith is a theologically derived interpretation. Nowhere in the Bible do you find believe or faith qualified by words like really believe, truly believe, sincerely believe, heart belief, heart faith, sincere faith. You don't find those qualifiers. Why? Because you either believe something or you do not. You believe that I am standing on the stage. It's not necessary to ask, do you really believe it? Do you believe it with your heart? The Bible looks at belief as something you either do or you do not do. So they have no root in themselves. Now, that word receive, by the way, uh, the Greek word, dekomai, is used elsewhere of salvation. And you can look at some of these verses if you get the time to look at them. And I'll give you a moment to jot them down if you want to. But that word is a word that is used of salvation. So they received the word indicating their salvation. They believed it. Um, but believers can fall away or depart from the truth. Now, the word temptation here probably speaks of adversity of some kind, difficulties. And you know, many, many places in the world to believe you're putting your life on the line. It's very difficult. I have friends in other parts of the world. They can't get a job. They can't find work. They're persecuted. They're uh, they are threatened, uh, their family members are, are killed. I could tell you stories after stories. 
They face adversity, and it would be very tempting for them just to, yes, believe the message, the good news, and be saved, but then to kind of fade away, maybe out of fear for their own life. Like Hymenaeus and Alexander in 1 Timothy chapter 1, who abandoned the faith, shipwrecked their faith. Or in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, In the end times there will be those who will depart from the faith. And there's a warning in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, about neglecting the faith and turning away, falling away from it. So it's a possibility recognized elsewhere in Scripture that people cannot sometimes persevere in their faith and they fall away. In this case, it's because of hardships. But you know, one of the, one of the conditions of, a disciple, of discipleship is that you take up your cross. That means you're willing to suffer, and maybe even unto death, because that's what the cross symbolized. It symbolized suffering and death. And a disciple is somebody who's willing to face that danger. There's great reward in that. But, I, you know, I can hardly blame some people for hiding, disguising, or even falling away from their faith because they've not had a chance to grow or mature in it, and it's just become too difficult for them. But it's just a reality in the world reflected in this parable. Now let's look at the third soil, another reality. Now, the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, they go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. Now, the Matthew and Mark say they, bring, they have bear no fruit. Luke says they bring no fruit to maturity. There's really not a great difference because if I have a peach tree and it has no fruit, or if I have a peach tree and it has very small fruit and they never mature, they fall off, then I would say it has no fruit, right? So really, it's just a different choice of words to say the same thing. So here we have not adversity, but thorns, which represent the cares of this world, distractions in this world, pleasures of life. And because of that, this person, though he has received the word, and we assume has, has heard it, and that word heard is often used of, of um, salvation as well, and they go out from hearing the word, receiving it, and I assume believing it from the text, and they exhibit life like the second soil, but that life is choked out. It's not choked out of existence, it's choked out of fruitfulness. You see, there's many theologians and commentators will say it never, the faith never existed, but that's not the point here. It did exist. It was just choked out of fruitfulness by the cares and the pleasures of this world. Like Demas, Luke says, who has deserted me because he loved the world. Demas forsaken, has forsaken me having loved this present world. One of the conditions of discipleship, again, is to deny ourselves, to deny ourselves sometimes good things or deny ourselves sometimes bad things, sins. But sometimes we can let the cares and riches and pleasures of this world keep us from growing and bearing fruit as disciples of Jesus Christ. I don't know how you do it. You're living here in Florida. You're surrounded by water. I'd be fishing every day. I wouldn't be a good disciple in, in, in Florida. I wrote a book about fishing, and it's got stories of Florida. I'm really jealous of all the water you have here. I live in landlocked north central Texas, and the nearest salt water is six, six hour drive away. I would be very distracted here. I would probably go out and buy a boat. And then I'd have to care for the boat. 
You know, you, you know, a boat is just a hole in the water you throw money into. You know that one because you live in Florida. Well, we say that in Texas too. But that's the kind of cares and pleasures people can seek after and neglect to the neglect of their own spiritual life and discipleship. And that happens to people in the Christian life. You've seen it. You've witnessed the people and they've, they've come to know Jesus Christ, but they get distracted by a new business or success or pursuing a new title or a new girlfriend or something else or a new boyfriend. And they don't persevere in their faith into fruitfulness as a disciple. Let's look at the last one. There, there are those who, the ones who fell on the good ground, are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. There are some peoples whose hearts are noble and good. They are seeking and searching for truth with sincerity. And when that word comes, it just sucks it right in like a sponge. And they keep the word, they follow it, and they bear fruit with patience. The word patience means perseverance. It has the idea of bearing up under pressure, in spite of pressure. So they hear it, they keep it, they bear fruit. It doesn't say that they get saved. But you see, there are many, many commentators and theologies that would say, well, this is the only group that gets saved. Because you have to have fruit if you're a Christian. But you know, that doesn't even prove their point. Because really what their point is, is you have to have fruit until the day you die. You have to persevere to the day you die in good works, or you were never really a Christian, never really one of the elect. But this doesn't say that. Just, this just says that they bear fruit. So it really doesn't make their point at all, does it? Keeping the word of God is used of disciples elsewhere. And by the way, hearing again is used salvifically or in the sense of us uh, being, getting saved. Um, in, uh, like in John 5 and John 10. But keeping the word is used of disciples elsewhere, as in John 8, 31, which we already cited. Um, if you abide in my word, you are, you are my disciples indeed. And bearing fruit, of course, is an essential of discipleship, and that's what John 15, 1 through 8, is all about. In an intimate discussion with only his disciples, Jesus talks about abiding in him and the importance of doing, abiding in him so that they can bear fruit, bear much fruit, bear great fruit, and bring glory to their Father. So this word patience means to persevere, to bear up under pressure. It's used elsewhere of believers in many places, persevering in faithfulness, sometimes with the mention of a reward. Is it James 1.12 that talks about the man who bears up under pressure will be blessed? Uh, bears through suffering will be blessed, uh, used as a verb and as a noun to speak of believers who persevere in their faith in spite of the pressures and trials around them. Let's uh, kind of wrap it up with some theological implications here and then some applications maybe. First of all, we want to be clear that initial faith in God's word, his gospel, his good news, secures salvation. There's no question about that from the parable. The first group didn't believe they weren't saved. The second group believed and they had life. The third group believed and they had life. The fourth group believed and they had life and fruit. But the last three soils all had life. 
And the question was not whether they had life. The question was what kind of life or how long did that life uh, exhibit itself before it was choked out or dried up. Secondly, initial faith does not guarantee persevering faith. And that's what soils number two and three show us, that a person can believe but not persevere to the end. And persevering faith secures fruitfulness, not salvation. That's what the fourth soil shows us. The one who perseveres and believes with, uh, and, and keeps the word, he bears fruit. It doesn't say he gets saved. And yet that's the only soil people, some people want to call saved. Persevering faith secures varying degrees of fruitfulness. Now, Luke only mentions a hundredfold, but Matthew and Mark talk about hundredfold, 60 and 30. So not every Christian is going to be as fruitful as another, but those who persevere are going to bear fruit in different degrees, probably according to how diligently they keep and abide in God's word. So when you look at your own life, are you bearing fruit? I bet you can correlate your answer to that question with how diligent are you in reading, studying, and staying in God's Word? Well, what about some applications? First of all, we should preach the gospel without prejudice. What I mean is we can't judge before we share the gospel with somebody whether they're going to reject it or not. Preach it to everybody, like the sower who sows the seed to every kind of soil. We don't want to say, well, I'm not going into that uh, homeless camp. Those people are all on drugs. They're not going to listen. They might be the people that listen more intently than anybody else. I'm not going to those biker dudes. They look too rough. They're going to, they're going to beat me up. Ah, you don't know biker dudes. It's all a show. I could go into that, but with a story. So preach it to everybody. And then pray against satanic opposition. You see that that's an important element of this story. And, and that requires us to pray. That's spiritual warfare. Uh, when I teach evangelism, I teach there's four dimensions to evangelism. There's God's dimension, of course, what he's doing. And that comes through his word, which is what we see here. Then, then there's my responsibility as the witness and evangelizer. And then there's the listener, the receptor, who hears the message, and then the fourth dimension is the dark side of the force. That's Satan who is at work, and we need to always be aware of that fourth dimension when we're evangelizing and sharing the gospel and pray against him in spiritual warfare. Third, don't become discouraged, but have realistic expectations in evangelism. When you're sowing the word, don't become discouraged when people reject it or don't listen to you. It's shown here that that's going to be a part of reality for you or for anyone who shares the gospel. If you've shared the gospel, you know what I'm talking about. You, I think you do. And then discipleship is a heart issue tested by the word of God. That's what we see here is the responsiveness of the heart and the heart that is receptive to the word of God will go on to bear fruit and be a faithful disciple. We get that teaching clearly from this parable. And then, lastly, I'd like to say we, we should cultivate responsive, pe responsive people when we find them. Not that we should neglect others, but if they've rejected us, we, we can cultivate those who are responsive to God's word.
And then I want you to think about several things. And I'm not sure that I have the answer to these things here, these questions that I'm asking. But it's something to think about. Should we focus our missionary and evangelistic efforts chiefly on those who appear responsive? Well, we should share the gospel with everybody. But when we find an area of the world or community or social level that is responsive, should we focus more on them? I think there may be some precedent that shows that we should. When Paul, Jesus told him, his disciples to dust off the feet of those towns that weren't responsive, right? Paul in Acts chapter 28 turns away from the Jews because they were rejecting his message and weren't listening. And then he went back to those groups that were responsive and taught them more. So is there a precedent to that? There could be. Now, I'm not God, so I'm not going to tell a missionary or an evangelist where to go and share the message. I think go to everybody, but I tend to go to those who really want to hear. I came back from South Africa just Saturday, and uh, I found out some interesting things about there, as it was explained to me by uh, a pastor. He says, you know, in South Africa, it's uh, 8% white and 92% black Africans. And he says the black Africans are so much easier to share the gospel with. They think spiritually. They're open to spiritual truth. They don't mind talking about religion. And then the other, the white population is made up of um, Afrikaners, which are Dutch-German origin. And, and they're a little bit kind of easy to talk to sometimes because they, traditionally they're from a Dutch Reformed background, German Reformed background, and they, they have a religious background. But he said the English-speaking are very difficult to share the gospel with because they're so secular. So here you have three groups of people in South Africa. Who would you focus on? My last day there, I was at the guest house. I was eating breakfast, and uh, uh, a man named Wellis came to serve us our breakfast. He was the manager of the guest house, and I began to talk to him and share with, uh, long story short, share the gospel with him and uh, ask him if he was going to heaven when he died. And he said, no, I haven't done enough good things, and I can't go to church because I work all the time. And I explained grace to him that it's not by works that we are saved, but by what Jesus did in his work. And if you believe in his work and what he's done in your place, then you can have everlasting life and go to heaven. And, and I explained that to him, and he's listening intently. And then I said, Wellis, uh, can I have a word of prayer with you? Can I pray for you? And as soon as I said that, I'm sitting at the table. As soon as I said that, he dropped down on his knees right next to the table, which surprised me because we don't do that in America when we pray. But that's how they pray. He was, that's, that's how spiritual oriented they are. He dropped down on his knees, and I prayed and thanked God for save, uh, giving Jesus uh, as a Savior to Wellis and et cetera, expressing the truth of the gospel, and, and amen. And I said, Wellis, did that express the desires of your heart? And he said, yes. And then later on, before I left the guest house, I said, Wellis, where are you going when you die? And he said, I'm going to heaven. Openness. Now, would I want to go and share with more people like that? I think I would. But, you know, if you want to share with the others, you can do that. God's God, not me. What strategy determined Paul's missionary activity and follow-up activity? I already said he, said he seemed to go to those who were responsible, asking for help like the Macedonian man. Come on over and help us. What should be the extent of our effort to change believers who fall away and become distracted by worldly things? What about those two soils that didn't persevere or go any further? Or what about the ones that rejected the gospel altogether? Should we give up on them? I don't think so. You do as God leads you, but uh, I think they deserve another hearing. We can't neglect them. 
Well, good ground for discipleship. The heart of the issue is an issue of the heart. That's what this parable is trying to tell us. Depending on how our heart is, is depending on how fruitful we will be as disciples. And as evangelists, we can't guess what kind of heart people have. We share the gospel with everyone. It was in South Africa that I heard the news about the collapse of the condo up the beach. Terrible, terrible thing that happened. And I assume now over 150 people dead. Do you think 150 people went into the presence of the Lord? Or did someone take the time to share the gospel with each of those children, parents, elderly people? Or would you have if you knew that the building was going to collapse on them? We're not guaranteed another minute on this earth. We're not guaranteed your, your family member, that you'll see your family members again. We have a great job to do in sharing this good news that Jesus Christ is God's son who was sent out of love for us so that we could be with God forever. And Jesus, as the God-man, paid the ultimate price on the cross, a price we could never pay because we're sinful, And he took our sins upon himself to satisfy God's justice so that God could now look on us with favor because of what Jesus did. And then Jesus rose from the dead to show his power and the acceptance by God of his gift. And then he promises us, whoever believes in me for that gift of eternal life will live forever. And I wonder tonight if you have done that or if you struggle with doubts and uncertainties about whether you are saved. You can settle that right at this moment. And if you're listening or watching right now, you can settle that right this moment by simply recognizing Jesus as God's son and by trusting in what he has done for you in his death and resurrection instead of trusting in yourself and just say, Lord, save me. And you will have eternal life and live forever. And nothing, nothing, Satan, no one can ever separate you from that love of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel, the good news, and what a privilege you have given to us to be those who can share it with others. Give us a sense of urgency as we do, and we thank you for these who are here and uh, care about that, and for the Free Grace Alliance that also cares about that, and for everyone who is listening right now. I just pray that the gospel would find fertile soil because this may be the last chance they will have to hear it. We thank you for the love of God. We thank you for Jesus, your son. We thank you for the gift of eternal life. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.